quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. AstraZeneca assurances the UK tries to boost confidence in the vaccine after clock concerns. Bolsonaro's belligerence, Brazil's president defying calls for a lockdown despite the rising death toll. And tackling taxes, plans for a global minimum rate gathering pace. It's Thursday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us this Thursday, another day where we measure how far we've come in the battle against COVID and how far we still need to go. Some 700 million vaccines have now been administered worldwide, almost 25 percent of that happening in the United States, where more than a third of the population have had at least one dose. In the EU, meanwhile, more than 80 million doses have been given after a start that the World Health Organization called unacceptably slow. Well, we'll be joined by EU vaccine czar Thierry Breton, who argues Europe is finally getting it right. Critical, of course, as Europe deals with fresh waves of the virus. That's the case across many nations in Asia, too, as we'll discuss, including Pakistan, a large nation already struggling to meet the conditions of an IMF rescue program. Its central bank governor joins us later to discuss their unique support efforts. In the meantime, here's a look at the global stock picture. U.S. majors range bound over the last couple of days, but tech is now catching a bid in Europe and Asia, as you can see, relatively mixed. Fed Chair Jay Powell speaking at the IMF spring meetings today. Expect continuing patience as central banks buy time for economic recovery around the world. Here in the United States, jobless claims rose by another 744,000 last week and a further 151,000 for pandemic-related assistance. These remain stubbornly high, even as other employment indicators improve. I think it's fresh evidence that it will be years before the U.S. jobs market fully heals. Never mind anywhere else. Let's get to the drivers now. The U.K. government moving to reassure Britons on the vaccine safety after another setback. For AstraZeneca, European and British medicine regulators confirmed Wednesday that there is a, quote, possible link between the company's vaccine and rare cases of blood clots. The UK now recommending alternative vaccines for those under 30. Summer Abdelaziz joins us now with all the details. Summer, I think if you're a person that's received an AstraZeneca vaccine or you're thinking about getting one or hoping to have a vaccine, you're very confused at this moment. Explain and help us understand what we need to know. bit of back and forth, isn't it, Julia? Right now, what we know is that these very rare cases of blood clotting will be listed as a side effect of the Oxford University and AstraZeneca vaccine. But yesterday, you had dual press conferences, one held by EU officials and one held here in London by UK health officials. They both seem to agree that uh, the benefits of this vaccine still outweigh the risks. Both sides said that there's no specific risk categories, but they took different approaches. On the EU side, they said there's no recommendations in terms 
terms of groups that should take or shouldn't take the vaccine. Here in Britain, of course, UK health officials now saying adults under the age of 30 should be given a different vaccine. And although the guidance has changed, health officials here say this shows the system works, that uh, the authorities, the procedures that are behind these vaccines were able to detect these very rare cases. And that's a good thing. But Health Secretary Matt Hancock out today reassuring the public that this will not delay the vaccine rollout. Take a listen. We have seen this incredible level of uptake of the vaccine in this country. And what we've learned in the last 24 hours is that the rollout of the vaccine is working. We've seen that the safety system is working because the regulators can spot even this extremely rare event, four in a million, and take necessary action to ensure that the rollout is as safe as it possibly can be. What both sides, what all experts seem to agree on is that more scientific work needs to be done, Julie, to understand this link between the vaccine and these very rare cases of blood clotting. But this can be really difficult to study. These are very, very rare cases out of over 20 million people that got the vaccine. Only 79 exhibited these cases. And while uh, experts and scientists try to dig into this, you still have these concerns around vaccine hesitancy, around who takes the vaccine. Yesterday in that press conference, there was this moment where they were saying, well, how did you come up with the age 30? What if I'm 31? What if I'm 32? What if my grandparents had a history of blood clotting? So you can see all the questions that arise here, Julia, at a very critical time. Yeah, you make so many great points there, Salma. And I think the other thing we have to understand is the sheer size of the numbers here of blood clots versus the numbers of people that are getting the vaccine. And to your exact point, there was a great graphic that the UK regulators put forth to show why they decided to choose that cutoff. This is uh, in terms of numbers for every 100,000 people in the population. And you can see on that line for the 20 and the 20 to 29 year olds, that's the only point where when you're trying to prevent admissions to intensive care units due to COVID, the probability there of a blood clot is higher than the prevention of visiting a hospital. Every, at every other level, it improves the admission to hospital numbers versus the blood clot risk. And that's why they made the decision. So I think even providing this information is vitally important. Summer. It's going to be a mission, I think, as far as regaining confidence, but um, people will try. Salma Abdelaziz, thank you for that. Absolutely. For more on vaccines and AstraZeneca's, stay with First Move. We speak to the European Union's vaccine SAR later this hour. In Asia, South Korea sees its biggest daily jump in COVID-19 cases this year for the second day in a row. 700 new cases reported today. It's just one of many countries in the region struggling to keep the virus under control, as Blake Essig reports. In a part of the world which was first to bear the brunt of COVID-19, pandemic fatigue, virus variants, and vaccine rollouts seemingly moving at a snail's pace are three factors that Dr. Jerome Kim, the head of the UN organization promoting vaccination and its development, says will likely continue to cause problems across Asia Pacific. If you can't control the pandemic and you don't have access to vaccine, you're not going to be, you're going to be in the situation we were in in the spring of 2020 hospitals being full with people being denied admission and and people dying at home. It's a grim reality that many countries in the region could face in the days and weeks to come. The Philippines, Bangladesh, Pakistan, most of Japan and South Korea are all seeing their daily case counts moving in the wrong direction. As for India, well over 100,000 new infections have been reported daily. 
last uh, couple of weeks, few weeks, the situation is becoming from bad to worse, and this is serious cause for concern. In the Philippines, the president's spokesperson said the spread of more infectious coronavirus variants came as a surprise. More than 24 million people in and around Manila have been living under lockdown for more than a week as cases continue to surge. Infections have been on the rise almost daily since mid-February. The result, many hospitals are overwhelmed and non-essential workers fear for what an extended lockdown might mean. It will be more difficult when we don't have jobs because we don't have the money to feed our family. While case counts are on the rise in several countries throughout Asia Pacific, vaccines are not as readily available as in countries like the UK and US. Dr. Kim explains why. I think countries uh, were a little late to enter the the queue uh, for vaccine purchases. I mean, to some extent in Korea and Japan, it was because there weren't as many cases and they wanted perhaps to know that the vaccines were working or, or which vaccines were safe. Japan has fully vaccinated about two-tenths of a percent of its population. The Philippines and South Korea, even less than that. In India, the vaccine factory of the world is still at less than one percent. But it's not all bad news across the Asia-Pacific region. In Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore and Vietnam, the new average daily case count has remained extremely low. Of keeping their countries. And in New Zealand and Australia, the count is low enough that they will resume operating a quarantine free travel corridor between the two countries later this month. Blake Essig, CNN, Tokyo. Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro is playing down an alarming new surge of coronavirus cases, rejecting lockdowns and saying, in his words, quote, We're not going to cry over spilt milk. This week, Brazil had its deadliest day of the pandemic so far, over 4,000 deaths in 24 hours. We are not going to accept this policy of staying at home, of closing everything down. This virus will not go. This virus, like others, is here to stay and will remain for a lifetime. It is practically impossible to eradicate it. What are we going to do until then? Chester Darlington joins us now. Chester, but you can do more in the spilt milk. In this case, 336,000 lives lost. What are the people there making of his response? And just talk us through what you're seeing. Well, Julia, it's obviously a dire situation. As you were mentioning, uh, we just got through the deadliest month since the pandemic began here in Brazil. That was March. And yet since then, the numbers have continued to rise. Tuesday saw the deadliest day in terms of uh, the number of deaths in a 24-hour period. For the first time, more than 4,000 people died in a single day. And expectations are that, unfortunately, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, there's a dangerous, more contagious virus that's spreading quickly. In 18 out of 26 states here in Brazil, the health systems are nearing collapse with more than 90% of beds in intensive care units occupied. The uh, respected Fio Cruz Foundation, one of the main um, biomedical institutes here, says that Brazil would need at least two weeks of a nationwide lockdown to begin to slow the spread of the virus. Uh, but as you mentioned, and as we heard him say, the president, Jair Bolsonaro, is adamantly opposed to that and, and thinks basically that it would hurt the economy more than the virus is affecting the population. So uh, this is a situation that is going to play out very slowly and very painfully, Julia. And I read that uh, Brazil had also confirmed its first case of the variant that was uh, first identified in South, um, South Africa as well, in addition to the, the P1 virus there as well. 
What about vaccines? Shasta, what progress on, on vaccine supplies? Uh, that's a great question. It, it's been a really rough rollout with a lot of delays. On the one hand, uh, Brazil is, is, has slowly set up to produce two vaccines here. So that's great news. The Coronavac, which was developed uh, by Chinese uh, uh, scientists, and the uh, AstraZeneca. But uh, we just found out that Brazil's main supplier of, of vaccines, the Butantan Institute, which pr produces Coronavac, has t temporarily suspended production. That's according to our affiliate CNN Brazil, which talked to sources saying that until they get new deliveries of the raw materials needed to produce it from China, they are going to set suspend production. Hopefully that will come next week. But right now, only 8.5% uh, of the population in Brazil has received at least one dose of the vaccine. This is a huge country, over 210 million people. So we need millions and millions of vaccines to get those two doses in arms. And this is going extremely slowly, Julia. Yeah, more speed required. Shasta, stay safe. And thank you for that update there, Shasta Darlington. All right, let's move on. Taxing Times, the push to overhaul global corporate tax rates is gathering momentum. CNN has confirmed reports the United States is proposing a new plan calling for multinational companies to pay taxes to governments based on their sales in each country. Claire Sebastian joins us with more. Claire, I think there's broad acknowledgement now that there's been a global race to the bottom as far as corporate tax rates is concerned. But this idea of taxing where the sales are made is an interesting one, particularly for tech companies, I think. Talk us through this potential plan. Yeah, this would represent a major shift, Julia, a major concession from the US side. Don't forget, the OECD, which is trying to come up with a unified plan on global taxation, has been at this for really the best part of a decade. And they've never seen this kind of concession uh, from the US before. A source familiar with the matter uh, confirming to me this morning that, that a meeting at the OECD is, is, is happening today where this plan is under discussion. What, what's going on is that the Americans, as was first reported by the Financial Times, uh, have put forward a plan whereby there, there would be a mechanism that they would come up with to, to redistribute somehow the taxes of these big multinational companies, most notably, of course, the tech giants. You know there's been a big backlash among companies in Europe, the UK. The, the, the taxes of these companies are based on where their profits are, not where their sales are. They've, they've uh, imposed digital sales taxes. The US has threatened sanctions. This has led to a big uh, international dispute. This could represent a resolution to that. We don't know what the exact details are as of yet. They will be the subject of discussion at the OECD, which aims to come up with some kind of plan later this year. Uh, but ultimately, this would mean that the, the taxes of big companies, the likes of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, could go to some, could be redistributed. This is something the US has long fought. They have, have believed that the, the taxation of these companies, their biggest companies, should be the business of the US alone. But crucially, the reason why we see this concession from the Biden administration is because they want something else from the OECD. They want this global minimum tax, which would disincentivize companies from offshoring their profits. And this, of course, comes as the Biden administration is trying to raise the corporate tax rate here in the US, Julia. Absolutely. If you're raising taxes at home, then suddenly having everybody on board for a global minimum tax makes far more sense to cushion the blow that you're about to uh, strike. It's a great point. The key here, though, for me as well, given, as I mentioned, this race to the bottom over corporate tax rates, how do you agree on what that minimum tax rate is actually going to be? 
Yeah, I think that will be a challenge for sure. The the U.S. number that they put forward is 21 percent. I think a lot of people are skeptical that they would they would get to, to something that high. There's a broad range, of course, uh, of, of corporate tax rates. Even if you look at Europe, you've got 12.5 percent in Ireland, which has made them a, a, a very attractive destination for you know a lot of these big tech companies uh, to, to up to 32 percent in France. So so a big range. So that's going to be one of the technical aspects up for discussion. Notably, Julia, the OECD when it when it modeled this idea of a global minimum tax, they they set that number at at 12 and a half percent. So so that is interesting. A big gap there from the U.S. plan of of 21 percent. But of course, the U.S. is trying to get close to the the 28 percent that it wants to raise its own corporate tax to. So it's a that definitely will be a challenge and that will be part of the ongoing discussions which are happening you know pretty much as we speak yes and progress could happen really quickly which is quite fascinating too claire sebastian that's not normal thank you very much for that all right still to come on first move vaccine vow after stuttering start in europe promising now herd immunity by july the eu's vaccine chief joins us next and Pakistan battling to protect its economy while fighting a third COVID wave. We speak to the country's central bank chief who's had to get creative. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. US tech picking up some momentum pre-market as we await Fed Chair Jerome Powell's appearance at the IMF spring meetings today. Growth stocks like Tesla and Baidu that have underperformed in recent sessions look set for a bounce too. Uber also higher in the session. Reports say the company's desperately trying to lure back drivers as car service demand bounces back. In the meantime, Chinese social media and gaming giant Tencent falling in Hong Kong trade. Its biggest shareholder selling almost $15 billion worth of stock, one of the biggest global block trades ever. Okay, the European Union's vaccine chief says the EU could achieve herd immunity by mid-July. He says vaccine manufacturing capacity across the union will grow to over 3 billion doses a year by the end of 2021. It's a big push to speed things up after criticism from the World Health Organization that said the EU's vaccine rollout had been unacceptably slow. Quote, joining us now is Thierry Breton. He's European Commissioner for the Internal Market and EU Vaccine Chief. Commissioner, fantastic to have you on the show once again. I think by your own admission, it was probably a a rocky start, but herd immunity by mid-July would be phenomenal. Is it really possible? No, you're right, Julia. It will be be a a, a very, very good news for all of us, believe me. And and we're working extremely hard here to make this happen. Uh, Yes, it is possible. It is feasible. And I strongly believe that we will achieve it. Because when I see, again, uh, what we have now uh, uh, ready to go, uh, we increase drastically the production uh, in EU. We have now 53 factories working seven days a week, 24-24. And uh, uh, yes, uh, I could tell you today that uh, we will deliver uh, the number of doses which will be necessary uh, to achieve uh, 70% of the adult population being vaccinated uh, by mid-July. In other words, it will be now in the hands of member states uh, to make sure that uh, in every single country of the EU, the vaccination campaign will accelerate. Are they prepared for it, Commissioner? Because to your no, point, a, having the supplies a, is not the same as getting them in people's arms. You're absolutely right. And that's uh, that's that's now, uh, we have now two, uh, let's say, uh, uh, phases ahead of us. Uh, now that the production is uh, is going on, 
Uh, of course, are organizing uh, the vaccination campaign all over the continent. That's a huge task. This is in the hand of the member states. It's not in the hand of the Commission. But I am in direct contact with every single member state. I am confident that they're doing the right things. But it is huge. That's right. And then, of course, uh, like everywhere, including in the US, we need to convince our fellow citizens that the solution is to accept to be vaccinated because this is how we will get through this pandemic. Part of the challenge there is the concerns about AstraZeneca's vaccine. You wrote a blog talking about Europe's response and you placed the blame squarely on supplies from AstraZeneca, saying you were given less than 25 percent of what was initially promised. Then came the sporadic response to, to safety concerns. Commissioner, what is your feeling today and what do you want people to understand about AstraZeneca and about AstraZeneca's vaccine? No, you know, uh, it's, it's absolutely true that uh, um, I would like to tell you that uh, uh, we had we had a difficult start uh, in in Q1, uh, mainly because uh, AstraZeneca delivered only 25 percent of what was planned. And it's true that uh, uh, the, um, we had to uh, to cope with this. But the good news, if I may say so, is that we are the continent today uh, uh, which the largest number of variety of different vaccines. We have now four vaccines to be approved by our uh, health authority agency and soon five, five uh, vaccines. And of course, uh, our factories are, uh, are working uh, in order to make sure that the delivery will be on time. So we will be able to cope with this situation. But it's true that in Q1, we had difficulties uh, definitely with AstraZeneca. So now they are reduced drastically their forecast for us in uh, in, in Q2. Uh, so uh, we are confident that we'll be able to deliver what is uh, achievable. It is true also that you have, uh, uh, let's say, um, discussion in certain member states uh, uh, on the vaccines. But yesterday, uh, our health authorities in Europe uh, reassured that uh, it was a good vaccine, and that the benefits was uh, really much, much better than the, some uh, problems we may have here or there. So it will be in the hand of the doctors uh, to decide uh, at which uh, uh, category you could uh, you could uh, inoculate. But we strongly believe that it will be part, of course, of our strategy. Thank you. Do you acknowledge that confidence, though, in that vaccine has been damaged? Uh, well, you know, uh, uh, you mean AstraZeneca? Yes. No, uh, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's true that we had we had again discussion on it. Uh, but as I said, the good thing is that we have a very large uh, variety of vaccines, and I think it's extremely important that all our fellow citizens uh, understand. Uh, that uh, in Europe, uh, we are extremely cautious, like in the US, by the way, with uh, the FDA, we are extremely cautious. And when our, our regulatory agency uh, give its green light, uh, uh, we can go. You've also said that there's no need to use the Russian vaccine, even if it had approval. It, but if it did get approval in the EU, is supply of that a problem? No, first, uh, uh, as, as you probably know, uh, uh, the, the so-called Sputnik V uh, uh, apply uh, to get an approval uh, by our health authority agency. It takes time huh, because this is a very serious process, uh, weeks or months. So we are just at the beginning of it. And, and I was always extremely clear on that. Uh, uh, we, 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 we have respect for all scientists on the planet working on, on this uh, subject, because at the end of the day, this is a, a, a subject uh, <laughs> which is uh, um, uh, considering uh, everybody on the planet. Mm. But for us today, 
the key is definitely to have the doses. You know, uh, uh, um, uh, our fellow citizens believe maybe at the beginning that you order and you get the following day the vaccine. No, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen like this. You need you need at least 10 to 12 months to transform a, fa- a factory uh, to adapt it to a new vaccine. So when it will be approved, you will need another maybe 10 months. And of course, it will be too late for this pandemic. Where we have to focus, again, our efforts is to make sure that everything we have in the pipeline, if I may say so, will be delivered on time. And this will happen within the next four to five months. Yeah, we keep our fingers crossed on that. Let's talk about vaccine passports. The hope was that that program or the uh, green certificates would be up and running by mid-June. Are we still on track for that? And can summer be saved in Europe? That's the big question. Oh, yes, very much so. Um, uh, as you know, uh, this is something uh, in our democratic systems that has, been, has to be approved by our co-legislators, especially in Parliament. Uh, but we are confident that this will be approved uh, very soon to make sure that everything will be on track by mid-June. In other words, uh, of course, uh, at that time, we will be close, hopefully, to the herd immunity we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago. And it will be uh, uh, very important to start again, I may say, to live normally and, of course, to start also again uh, um, uh, normal seasons. But again, it's important also to understand that uh, uh, we will need to continue, uh, even um, if we, we are able and we will be able to reach this herd immunity, uh, uh, to be careful, to be cautious. And the um, uh, uh, green certificate will give an indication that you you, are, you have been immune and you are not uh, a danger for others, which is extremely important to reopen, uh, let's say, our way to live together. And just very quickly, for European nation states that have used the, the Russian vaccine, that will also qualify for entry on that green certificate? No, it's not planned today. Okay. And we shall see going forward. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. Fingers crossed that everything goes ahead as planned and we get that herd immunity by mid-July. Thierry Brisson, there, the European Commissioner for the Internal Markets and EU Vaccine Chief. Great to have you, sir, once again. All right, after the break, Pakistan walks a narrow path to recovery with pandemic stimulus on the one side, spending limits from the government on the other. The governor of the state bank tells me how they're going about it. And he's next. Welcome back to First Move. The S&P 500 inching further into record territory. The Nasdaq higher too has continued U.S. economic optimism outweighs concerns about frighteningly high COVID rates still in many parts of the globe. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon predictions of a strong U.S. growth into 2023 still reverberating on Wall Street. But of course, uncertainty too over historic moves to overhaul the global tax system for multinationals. GameStop. Also a big gainer today, the Reddit Army favourite hire on word that board member and Chewy co-founder Ryan Cohen will be nominated chairman. Cohen's push to revamp GameStop was a catalyst for the company's parabolic moves earlier this year. To Pakistan now, currently battling a third wave of COVID-19, tightening restrictions on its population of 217 million people while also trying to protect the economy. It was already a challenging time for the nation, forced to enter a multi-billion dollar rescue program with the IMF back in 2019 that then curtailed the government's ability to spend in response to the pandemic. 
Well, that forced Pakistan's central bank to get creative with all sorts of measures to help. And joining us now is Dr. Reza Bakia. He's governor of the State Bank of Pakistan. So fantastic to have you on the show. As I mentioned there, you had to get creative because, of course, there were limitations on what the government could do in terms of spending. Just give us a sense of the challenges you face and how you responded. Thank you, Julia, for having me on your show. COVID has been terrible for any country, but for Pakistan, it's particularly challenging. One, Pakistan being the world's fifth largest country, home to more poor people than, say, the entire population of Spain. And second, we had just started an IMF program, and the economy was already slowing down due to the stabilization policies we had to implement. So when COVID came, we had to be very quick on our feet. And I would tell you, on the public health dimension, the government gave a quick response. And currently, even right now, as we are in the midst of the third wave, Pakistan has about 18 cases per million. That still compares favorably to about 187 million cases, 187 cases per million in the US. So first was the public health dimension. On the central bank side, we had to be aggressive, Julia. We had to be flexible and we had to be targeted. Aggressive in that in total, we gave support of about 5% of GDP to the businesses that needed it. Flexible in that we had to revise our policies in response to feedback that we got from the business community. And targeted in that you could only get these facilities if you satisfied certain conditions. So for instance, our concessional facility for employment, companies could only get that cheap financing if they committed to not lay off workers for six months. Another targeted facility, was purely for financing of import of ventilators and construction of health facilities to fight COVID. And lastly, a targeted facility for cheap financing for purchase of machinery. You could only get that if you showed a letter of credit demonstrating that the money was going to be used to purchase machinery. So for the central bank, it was aggressive, it was flexible, and it was targeted. I mean, to your point as well about the direct support for the first time for, for businesses saying, look, you have to keep on your workers, otherwise you don't get access to these cheap loans. And, and you and I have discussed um, off air that you believe you saved around one and a half million jobs at a time when every job counts, quite frankly. What you've also seen is a near halving of, of interest rates since the pandemic began. A lot of people looking at the situation now and the rise in inflation as many nations are facing and saying, are you at some point going to have to raise interest rates, which, of course, is the last thing you want to be doing, given the challenges in the economy? Governor, can you get around raising rates if inflation indeed becomes a problem? Because I'm sure there are many in your nation that want assurances on that, if you can give it. Julia, currently our estimate is that of the roughly three percentage point rise in inflation over the past three months, about half of that is due to factors that are not in control of monetary policy. This is increase in electricity, price, uh, electricity prices and because of the increase in food prices, primarily commodities. Interest rates cannot control either of these two factors. Right. <laughs> Central banks that have credibility have to look through temporary 
increases in inflation. That is what we are trying to do with clear communication and keeping a close eye on inflation expectations. One, through surveys that show that inflation expectations are broadly still anchored. And second, Julia, by keeping an eye also on the exchange rate, because for emerging markets with flexible exchange rates, one key test of the credibility of a central bank is its currency. Mm. For us, that's not been a source of concern. Year to date, the Pakistani rupee is the world's second most strongest exchange rate to date. So, so far, we feel we are able to maintain the current accommodative stance of monetary policy. Yeah, and it's an ongoing battle as well, to your point, the fact that you've managed to maintain market access. I know you recently issued a 30-year debt as well, some euro bonds as well. So it's that balance between adhering to an IMF program, but trying to support your economy and maintain market confidence. One of the ways that I know you personally feel very passionately about is trying to capture some of the benefits of digitization for the proportion of your population. And it's a significant one that remain unbanked as part of a broader, healthier recovery. Talk to me about RAST and what that's achieving. I believe in Urdu, it means direct way. I like the name. Yes, Julia, we are very excited about RAST. It is a faster payment system of the sort in UK, in Singapore. Just to put it in perspective, the US plans to introduce such a system in about three years. We are introducing it today. It is going to allow people to get payments done within seconds and get a confirmation on their phone that a payment has taken place. With that kind of a system, we hope that we will make a increase, some progress on the level of the financial inclusion. It's a big challenge for us right now. Let me illustrate. Right now, only one in two men in Pakistan is considered to have a bank account. And only one in five adult women are considered to have a bank account. These numbers are low. They're low compared to the region. They're low compared to other emerging markets. But our vision is that with RAST, with the ability that if you have a phone, you have a bank account, we're going to have a rapid increase in financial inclusion. You correctly pointed out an additional message you want to give through RAST is to avoid the use of cash because often right. corruption comes with cash. And that's why RAST meaning direct, meaning the correct way to make payments. Yeah. And also a lot of people, the majority of people have mobile phones and you don't need a smartphone in order to be able to use this system as well, because I was looking at the details, which is important and so important for equality, too, which I know is another huge focus of yours. To the point that you made, though, which is a fascinating one about trying to get away from cash and perhaps tackling corruption in formal parts of the economy as well that, that you dislike. What are your views on a central bank digital coin in Pakistan? China's clearly making huge advances on this. Where does Pakistan stand? We are studying that very carefully. Mm. We think that some countries like China are already showing the way. The benefit of that to us is twofold. Not only does it give another boost to our efforts for financial inclusion, but second, because it's a central bank issued digital currency, it allows us to make further progress in our fight on, on towards anti-money laundering, towards countering terrorism financing. So we are at a stage, Julia, where we are studying it. 
We hope to be able to make some announcement on that in the coming months. For now, we have allowed a framework for digital banks to begin operating in Pakistan, banks which don't have brick and mortar presence, but banks which are purely digital like challenger banks or neobanks. So we are studying it. I saw the world's biggest uh, fintech, Stripe, was eyeing the opportunity in Pakistan as well. Are they welcome? Stripe is very welcome. Other such big international payment providers are very welcome. Pakistan is a market home to the fifth largest concentration of people. It's a market where people are generally tech savvy, and it's a market that's waiting to burst as far as digitization is concerned. Julia, during COVID, we did one thing, which is to eliminate fees on interbank transfers. And the impact of that was phenomenal. For the quarter that ended in December, we had growth of about 150 to 200% compared to a year ago on mobile banking transactions. For internet banking transactions, that number is around 800 to 150% growth. So it is a market you know, uh, 225 million people, approximately a very young market and a very tech-savvy market. That is very, very fertile for such digital innovation. So we are very open and we embrace any global mobile payment operator that wants to come to Pakistan. Yeah, you're redefining the role of a, a central bank, I think, and we wish you well and your people well. So great to chat to you, the government. The governor of the central bank there, the state bank of Pakistan. We'll speak soon, please. All right. After the break, more on AstraZeneca's vaccine, how a series of missteps have tarnished its reputation. Next. Welcome back to First Move, held as the vaccine that would save the world from coronavirus. AstraZeneca's vaccine has certainly been hit by a series of missteps. Anna Stewart is in London with a look. It felt a little like an Academy Award acceptance speech. I just want to say that it's been really a great pleasure and a privilege. AstraZeneca, with its Oxford partner, developed one of the first COVID-19 vaccines deemed safe and effective by regulators around the world. It's cheaper than the vaccine developed by Pfizer-BioNTech, and it can be stored safely at higher temperatures. Yet in many ways, this vaccine has been a drag on AstraZeneca's reputation. First, there were questions on its trial data. Unusually, the initial phase three results suggested a half dose of the vaccine, followed by a full dose weeks apart, was more effective in preventing disease than two full doses. Days later, the company admitted the half dose had been administered by error and was later dropped from the trial altogether. I didn't believe this half-dose, full-dose story. It didn't ring right to me. Subsequent papers from Oxford AstraZeneca Group have shown the the gap that was making the difference and not the half-dose, which everybody was getting, the Oxford Group was getting very excited about. There were also questions about whether the vaccine should be used for older age groups. French President Emmanuel Macron described the vaccine as quasi-ineffective in a press briefing. But hours later... It's a real pleasure to be here and to announce the third positive opinion for the authorization of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. 
Europe's medicines regulator, the EMA, approved its use. However, some damage was done to public trust. More skepticism of that particular vaccine has been fostered uh, in the public, which could make it more difficult for European countries to, to ramp up vaccinations to the extent that they need to catch up with the UK. The race was on to see how quickly the vaccine could be made and delivered. In January, AstraZeneca announced that its supply to the EU would be lower than forecast, at least initially. It sparked anger amongst some EU leaders who claimed AstraZeneca was wrongly prioritising supplies to other countries and delaying fulfilment of EU contracts. That led the EU to implement strict vaccine export controls. Companies have to honour their contract to uh, the European Union before they um, export um, to other regions in the world. More recently, there have been concerns over the vaccine safety following reports of some people developing rare blood clots after at least one dose, leading some countries to restrict the vaccine, at least for now, to older groups only. A causal link is possible, according to new guidance from the EU and the UK's medicines regulators. Both said the benefits of taking the vaccine outweigh the risks, although in the UK, those under the age of 30 will be offered an alternative vaccine given their risk from COVID is lower. There's the added factor that there are other vaccines on the market, which haven't had as many negative headlines to their name. Well, you have multiple companies producing very similar products or trying to. Is this partly at least just a case of winners and losers? The game of branding is always relative. You're always compared to the other alternatives in the market. And and that means, unfortunately, that there will be those perceived to be better and those perceived to be weaker, winners and losers. Currently, AstraZeneca appears to be on a losing streak. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. All right, still to come, two years after the fire that brought down its famous spire, rare access to the restoration of the Notre Dame Cathedral. Stay with us. It's been almost two years since the devastating fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Now, rebuilding it could take many more years. And much of the focus has been on restoring the church spire so far, which famously collapsed during the blaze. CNN's Melissa Bell takes a look at progress. It's vaulted ceilings, stained glass windows and elaborate columns. As you can see on these images shot by CNN, So much of what makes Notre Dame one of the world's most exquisite Gothic wonders stands tall, almost miraculously. The construction of the cathedral may have taken 182 years from when it began in 1163. It took the fire of 2019 a matter of hours to compromise its stability. The work of the last two years has been all about ensuring that the cathedral stayed upright. We had to be sure that the structure is solid. So I have to take a lot of measures to consolidate. We don't want to make a reconstruction without being reassured. Here you can see the iconic North Tower that at one point had been threatened by the flames on the night of the fire. In the end, they were put out before it could collapse. But this was where the most devastating part of the fire took place. It was here that the famous Notre Dame spire once stood. 
As the world watched, the spire, which had been under renovation, collapsed, breaking through the vaulted ceiling, which then crashed into the nave. The scaffolding that had surrounded it, 40,000 tubes of metal now twisted into the structure, then had to be carefully picked through and removed. General Jean-Louis Georgelin, who's in charge of the renovations, gave CNN a rare tour. This is a place where the spire collapsed. You know, this is the center of the drama. The general then shows us the exact spot where the spire first came crashing through. Here, the vaulted ceiling is held up by wooden pillars, each weighing a ton and a half. They ensure, explains the project manager, that if the stones give way, for whatever reason, bad weather, a tremor, a shock, well, the wooden support beams will keep the structure standing. Now that the scaffolding for the renovations is ready, General Georgelin says that the work of rebuilding Notre-Dame's vaulted ceiling and its spire will begin before the end of the year. This is the central part of the nave where the great majority of the reconstruction is going to have to take place since it's here that the spire collapsed, bringing down the stone structure with it. Elsewhere, what's really remarkable is how intact the structure is. These stones that had stood for more than eight centuries, almost exactly as they were. Outside, too, the cathedral's iconic Gothic facade stands as a testament to a construction that has proven as sturdy as it is delicate. Cathedral officials say that almost a billion dollars have been raised through donations from 150 countries so far. A reminder of the place that Notre-Dame has, not just in the history of France, but in the hearts of so many all around the world. Melissa Bell, CNN, Paris. So beautiful. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN as always. And in the meantime, stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.